Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. But I want to tell you, uh, last week as I was preparing for last week, if you're here with us, uh, you'll remember I, I spoke from Hebrews 11, right? Who was here last week? Yeah, who got anointed? Come on, God, was at work in your week, I pray. Uh, and, and as I was reading in Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11, for, for those of us who don't know, is, is kind of a, it's a passage of Scripture often referred to as the heroes of faith. And it, it's, it's kind of like the, it's a biblical highlights reel, right? The, the author of Hebrews is, is presenting some of the, the heroes of our faith, the heroes of the story thus far. Uh, and, and I read from Hebrews 11, because I was reading about how, how Moses was kind of uh, surmised by the author of Hebrews, that he rejected a life of soft sin with the oppressors uh, living in Egypt and d- instead decided to side with the Israelites and bought freedom. Uh, and, and as I was reading in Hebrews 11 for, for that prep uh, last week, another verse caught my eye. Uh, and, and I just kind of read it and I, and I went past it, but it just stuck in my head. And I wrote one sermon for today earlier in the week. And, and then this scripture stayed stuck in my head, and so I wrote a second sermon, uh, and I'm going to preach both. No, that's not true. I'm just going to preach the second one. Uh, but but it, it says this, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 21, I'm reading from the message translation. I'll put it up on the screen. It says this, by an act of faith, Jacob, on his deathbed, blessed each of Joseph's sons in turn, blessing them with God's blessing, not his own, as he bowed worshipfully upon his staff. Worshipfully, that's a... It's got nothing to do with what I'm going to speak about today. I just think it's a great word, right? You could, if someone was like, how was Sunday? You could be like, oh, it was great. I just really engaged with God very worshipfully. Yeah? You got permission to say that. Um, but the reason that this caught my eye, this verse in, in Hebrews 11, is, is because, like I said, it's this, this statement, this, this passage of the heroes of faith. And it's got people like Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and, and David and Enoch and Noah and, and a whole bunch of others. I'm sorry if I, I skipped your favorite. But, but I find it interesting that for Jacob, who's also known as Israel, there's a lot that happens in his life, right? Jacob is, is, is definitely one of the heroes of our faith. He's got an incredible story, and, and yet rather than kind of speaking of any of the extravagant things that happen in his life, the, the author of Hebrews sums up his, his greatest hits is, is this passage of how he blessed Joseph's sons, his grandchildren, and leaned worshipfully on his staff. And it kind of captured my, my attention because I was like, that's a weird, everyone else has got like these incredible moments that you'd definitely pick out. You'd be like, no, yeah, that was their moment in which God moved. That was incredible. And yet Jacob, it seems to be a little bit different. And so I want to look at it because I believe that there's a lesson in this for us that's going to set us up well this Palm Sunday, right? It's Palm Sunday. I hope you uh, walked in on imaginary palms uh, this morning. We didn't put them down for you. But, but this Palm Sunday about embracing Easter, yeah, I believe, in, and, and I'll speak into this more in a moment, but I believe that Easter is a significant moment for us as Christians. And I also believe that as a result of that, there, there is forces that come against us to try and distract us from the significance of the moment. That you would not lean in and receive what God has for you as, as, you, as you reflect on the, the enormity of, of Jesus dying on the cross for you. That we would get caught up in, in the holiday and the days off and the chocolate and we would miss what God has for us. And so what I want to do for you today, it's my goal that, that you would be well equipped at the end of this service to engage in Easter. There's something in your heart would be drawn to what God's going to do. So uh, what I'd like to do is start with me by, by turning to Genesis chapter 48. We're going to read verses 8 to 20 because this is the moment 
that the author of Hebrews is referring to, right? You following me? The author of Hebrews is like, oh man, Jacob, the best moment in his life is when he blessed Joseph's son and, and, and sons and, and leaned on his staff. And this is the account of Jacob blessing Joseph's son. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to the Hebrew, uh, Genesis chapter 48, verses 8 to 20. It says this, just then Jacob noticed Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Right? Joseph told his father, they are my sons whom God gave to me in this place. He means Egypt. Bring them to me, he said, so I can bless them. Israel, remember we use Jacob and Israel, kind of get uh, intermingled here. Israel's eyesight was poor from old age. He was nearly blind. So Joseph brought them up close. Old, old Israel kissed and embraced them and said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has let me see your children as well. Joseph took them from Israel's knees and bowed respectfully, his face to the ground. Then Joseph took the two boys, Ephraim with his right hand, setting him to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand, setting him to Israel's right, and stood before them. But Israel crossed his arms and put his right hand on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, the firstborn. Then he blessed them. The God before whom walked my fathers Abraham and Isaac, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this very day, the angel who delivered me from every evil, bless these boys. May my name be echoed in their lives in the names of Abraham and Isaac, my fathers, and may they grow covering the earth with their children. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought he had made a mistake. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, saying, that's the wrong head, father. The other one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father wouldn't do it. He said, I know my son, but I know what I'm doing. He also will develop into a people, and he also will be great. But his younger brother will be even greater, and his descendants will enrich nations. Then he blessed them both. Israel will use your names to give blessings. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. In that, he made it explicit. He put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. Why don't you bow your heads with me, and let's pray. God, I thank you for, for these moments as we gather together, as we go to your scripture. God, I thank you that, that your word will never return void. God, I pray that today as, as, as I share what you put on my heart, that, that it would not be my words or my ideas, but that you would sow something into us. God, that we would capture something of what you want to say to us, that we would leave knowing that we, we met with you, that you spoke into us, that we were transformed from the inside out by your love, your grace, and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. So th this passage in, in Genesis chapter uh, 48, it's interesting, right? Who is a little bit confused, if you're being honest? You're like, I don't get what's going on. There's some switching of hands. There's some names I don't know. This is weird, right? It's all right to say that. It's, it's fine to be confused by the Bible. The aim is not to stay confused by the Bible, right? Now, now this is an interesting uh, passage because it's effectively the end of Jacob's life, right? The, the author of Hebrews alludes to this when he says, on his deathbed. That, that's, that's the end of your life, your deathbed. There's not much that happens after that. Uh, and, and so he says, on his deathbed, he, bl he blesses these sons. Now, I would say that this is kind of the fifth act. If you're a theater nerd like me, we're in a theater, so uh, you know, I'm allowed to indulge in some theater terms. This is the fifth act of Jacob's life. And, and the previous acts have, have been really, really interesting. You, you have uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord at midnight pretty interesting. You have the vision of the stairway of heaven and earth. That's pretty interesting. You have this epic love story of Rachel and Jacob. You, you have where you start with a conspiracy to, to deceive Esau out of his birthright by duping his poor blind father, Isaac. They're all really exciting. And then you get to the end of his life, and it's kind of, it's of all of the bits, it's by far the most boring. 
this moment in which he just kind of blesses the sons of, of his son, and, and, and it's confusing, and his, his son's like, hey, you're blessing the wrong people, are you blind, what's going on, and, and then it's done. It's, it's an odd moment, and it's hard to think that this would be the most significant moment that the author of Hebrews would draw out to be like, this is the paramount moment in Jacob's life. But I, I think that the reason that it's included in the entry of the heroes of faith is, is we don't see, but Jacob is stepping profoundly and deliberately into a realization of the grace of God. See, what I want to preach to you about is, is the grace of God. If you're taking uh, notes today, my sermon is quite simply titled, Grace. Right, and, and I want to share with you three ideas, uh, three statements that I think reflect Jacob's understanding of, of God's grace. I want to tell you that we are sheep saved by grace, so trust the shepherd. Is that all right? We're going to get straight into it because i got some good stuff for you. Point number one, if you're taking notes, is we are sheep. So here we have Jacob, and, and, and right after, uh, essentially, he starts the blessing by, by kind of acknowledging his, his, his forefathers, and then he goes straight into it by saying, the God who has been my shepherd. Now, this is interesting because we know this is a turn of phrase we use all the time, right? Like, the Lord is my shepherd. It's, it's, it's a familiar turn of phrase, yes? This is the first time. This is where this phrase originates. The first time it is used in the Bible is this moment as Jacob blesses Joseph's sons on his deathbed. He says, God who has been my shepherd. Now, one of the things that Jacob is doing when he's calling God a shepherd is he is also calling himself a sheep. Exactly. And and you might remember sheep in the Bible are synonymous with stupid. Right, what, what Jacob is saying is he is saying, God is my shepherd and I am a sheep. I am weak and witless. I've got, I've got no capability to, to, to fulfill what I need to do. Jacob doesn't say, I'm a rancher, right? Sorry, God is, God is my rancher and I am a horse. I'm a wild stallion, right? It, Jacob does not say, God is my cattle hand and I am a cow. I can't go on in any other examples because I don't know any other types of names for, for people who look after animals. So God is my dog walker and I'm a dog. It doesn't matter. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, God is my shepherd and thereby implies that, that he is a sheep. You know, it's interesting. A, a, a horse, a horse, if the rancher lets it go, it becomes wild. Yeah? It goes feral. There, there are a bunch of horses, in fact, uh, just east of, of the desert road near Taupo in the North Island, uh, the, the uh, Kaimanawa horses. They've been wild since 1876. It's a wild population of horses. Every time I used to travel on the desert road as a kid, I'd always be looking out for them. I'm going to see them. I'm going to see them. I saw them once. They definitely exist, but they, they don't just ride next to the road, which is probably why they've stayed wild. And a, and a distinction between them and sheep. If there was a wild flock of sheep in the desert road and they were released in 1876, there would not be sheep left on the desert road anymore. They would not have made it, yeah? Wild sheep do not really exist. And in New Zealand, there are around about 26 million sheep, which who's glad that the sheep have not like developed a higher level of of thought and decided to overthrow us because we would be done in a minute, right? The sheep would take us out. But there are 26 million uh, sheep in New Zealand, and there are only 11 wild herd populations of sheep. 11 herds out of 26 million sheep. And even then, the only reason that there are wild sheep is because in New Zealand, there's not really any natural predators for sheep. We don't have bears or wolves or lions or tigers, except for apparently maybe that, that mysterious big cat that lives somewhere down near Otago. It's been eating all the sheep. 
But in New Zealand, we don't have these, these predators to take out the sheep, and yet there's still only 11 wild populations. I don't know if you remember, I shared with you uh, last year the story of the sheep in Turkey. Does anyone remember the story? Just a quick reminder, there were 1,500 sheep in, in Turkey, uh, and one of those sheep decided to, to go off a cliff. Again, who knows why? Sheep are stupid. It goes off the cliff. The rest of the flock, do you know what they do? Instead of thinking, that's a poor decision, let's not follow that sheep that just jumped off this cliff, they follow the, the sheep off the cliff. All 1,500 sheep follow each other off this cliff, which is very sad, but fortunately, only 400 of them died because uh, the, the, 400, the first 400 made a nice sheepy pillow for the, the following 1,100, and they just kind of landed on them and went on their way, right? Sheep are dumb, is what I'm trying to say. And, and so when Jacob calls himself a, a, a sheep, he's acknowledging, God, I am helpless in relation to you. He's acknowledging, I don't need a God like the God of the other religions, one who says, here's what you must do. Seek me, find me, do, do by my rules, obey my law, be good enough, and then I'll love you. Jacob knows we are too clueless for that. We are not a people who are, who are spiritually horses. We are not spiritually cows. We are not spiritually cats or dogs. We are spiritually sheep. And sheep fundamentally need a shepherd. The shepherd has to come to the sheep constantly and rescue them. And we don't need a God who just tells us, here's the rules, go and do them. We need a God who fulfills the rules for us. A, a, a God who, who, who does what we cannot and then reminds us again and again that he's done it, coming to us and saying, I've already died for you. I've already paid the price for you. I've already met you in your inadequacy, and I've loved you so much that I've bridged the gap between us. Would you simply receive? See, at first point, we are sheep. We are helpless and in need of a shepherd. Then, then point number two is we are saved by grace. Jacob, after, after acknowledging that, that, that he is a sheep in need of a shepherd, he, or just before, in fact, he does something very odd. And I think it's the reason that the author of Hebrews actually pulls this moment out and includes it in his Heroes of Faith he crosses his hands, to which a natural response would be, so what? <laughs> well, I can do that. It's quite easy. Turn to your neighbor and just show them off. Look, I'm exactly like Jacob. I've got, I got profound abilities. I'm, just, I'm crossing my hands and cross my legs, right? Like I can't cross my eyes. My eyes lose focus when I get too close. But some of you probably can. You're advanced achievers. That's, that's fantastic, right? We can cross. That's incredible. But here Jacob is, he, he crosses his hands, and, and, and so follow me in this moment to understand what's happening here. Here is old Jacob, and, and the narrow-mater, narrator, not the narrow-mater, the narrow, uh, that's been, I'm watching too many uh, cars with Ollie, and, and anyway, doesn't matter, doesn't matter, we're staying on, on, to, on, on target, on point. Turn to your neighbor and say the narrator. Can you say it in a narratory voice? Like, you know, you gotta look, the narrator. That was pretty good. Uh, the narrator, he makes sure to foreshadow what's about to happen. He, he speaks of the fact that he notes that Jacob's eyes are poor from old age. He was nearly blind. And, and so Joseph leads his two sons up to Jacob and very carefully, because, you know, dad is old and decrepit and, and he can hardly see very carefully, he leads Manasseh, his older son, to Jacob's right hand. Because Manasseh is the one who gets the inheritance in these ancient cultures. Manasseh is the, in the, in the culture of uh, primogenitor, he's the one who, who's supposed to get the blessing. He's the one who gets the love of the family. He's the one who gets all of the power and all the inheritance. And the right hand is the hand of power. The right hand is the hand at which the prime minister sits of the, of the king or the pharaoh. The right hand was the place to be. And so he brings Manasseh, his oldest son, to Jacob's right hand to receive the significant blessing. And he brings Ephraim, little Ephraim, his younger son, the second son, the little boy, to Jacob's left hand. 
And then Joseph is like, okay, Dad, do your thing. Bless away. Go for gold. And Jacob says, okay. Switch. And he switches his hands. And, and, and Joseph's like, oh, no. My poor, poor father. In his oldness and his blindness and his, and his mental fragility, he's gone and made a mistake. He's had a big life, old Jacob. Oh, Dad, you've done, look, you've, no, no, that's, that's not. You know how sometimes you speak a little bit condescendingly to older people? It's this moment. No, no, Dad, that, that's, not, that's not the right son. You want to go, look, cross your hands back. Crazy, Dad, what are you doing? And Jacob responds to him, no, no, I know. I know whose head my hands are on. I know what I'm doing. I'm doing this on purpose. I've switched my hands. See, what he's doing is he's, sh- he's showing that he understands something. He's seeing through the lens of grace. See, far before Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, Jacob acts it out. Jacob shows us in a physical display, he chooses the one who shouldn't be chosen. He embraces God's economy. We see it over and over again. God always chooses the wrong option. All throughout uh, the book of Genesis, God chooses the younger son over the older son every time, totally against cultural norms and structures. He chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. If you look back at the book of Judges, which is about these leaders that God raises up to deliver Israel in moments of crisis, outside of the first judge, Othniel, all of the other judges are exactly the opposite of what the world thinks would be a good leader. And then the nation of Israel comes along a little bit further, and they're in, they're in battle. Here comes Goliath, this, this towering champion of a man. And God needs to raise up a hero to fight Goliath. And so he sends Samuel to Jesse's house. And Jesse has all of these strapping young sons ready to be warriors. And God directs Samuel to choose the only one who has not yet gone through puberty. And, and then we go to the Gospels. Every time there is a prostitute and a religious leader, Every time there is a tax collector and a teacher of the law, every time there is an outsider and an insider, Jesus always works with the outsider. Now, you might be here today, and and you might have a bit of a tender heart, and and you might have been distracted by, oh, man, poor old Manasseh. Right, like, guy came, it was his right to receive this, this was his opportunity, and he gets it ripped from him, right, like, gutted for, I want to let you know that it's not that God hates Manasseh. And in fact, Jacob actually says, hey, Manasseh too will be great, but I'm not choosing the one who should be chosen. He's showing that God's economy opposes the economy of the world because it's all pointing to the fact that this is a work of grace. See, what I want you to understand is that God is the shepherd and, and, and he doesn't give us rules and judge us by our ability to keep them. He fulfills the rules for us. He has to do everything for us. We're sheep. And the way that he does that, and this is why I wanted to preach this message today, is so that we could lean in next week into Easter, so that when we're in our homes on Good Friday, we don't simply break the bread and and share the cup and then go about the rest of the day, but something in us stops and reflects, saying, God, it's incredible that you would come for me. Because the way that Jesus meets us where we cannot go is Jesus comes to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died, to take the penalty for our sins, which means that salvation of God has come into the world in weakness, in, in death, in defeat, in death on a cross. And what I want you to understand in this idea is that the way that we receive it is we receive it the opposite way that you would receive it in any other kind of philosophy or any other religion. 
Every other philosophy or religion would say, here's how you relate to God. Pull yourself together. Be strong. And then say, God, accept me because I've earned my way into your good graces. We see this all throughout the, the, the alternative kind of uh, historical accounts in comparison to when the Bible is written. Everyone else is, is earning their way into some sort of demigod status, earning their way into, into being gods themselves, and yet God says, no, this is not the way that it works. You cannot invent these ideas to explain the world. The way that it works is you cannot, but I can. The, the gospel is admit that you're not together. Admit that you're weak and say, God, you're going to have to relate to me because of what he has done, not because of me. It's exactly the opposite of traditional wisdom. And so Jacob, he finally understands this in his life. And so he intentionally creates a moment of this. He creates a lesson for Joseph and for his sons saying, Joseph, remember, we are God's people. We do not earn our way into the good graces of God. God is faithful. We are not. He crosses his hands on us. We are blessed out of turn. This isn't about choosing Ephraim over Manasseh as much as it is teaching us that we are saved by grace, not merit. That it is not through a work of our own, as amazing as you might be. There are some incredible people in the room today, but none of us are Manasseh. None of us. Every single one of us is Ephraim. Every single one of us is receiving a blessing from God that we are not worthy of. We have not earned our way into. You are not being gypped out of something that God should give you. You are being given something that you could never earn. And Jesus was more worthy than Manasseh could ever have been. And yet he takes the Father's hand off of his own head and says, No, God, not me. Bless them. Not me, shift your hand. He crosses the Father's hands and says, Not me, them. And see, this changes our worldview. So you want to say that we, we naturally divide the world into good and bad, don't we? They're bad. I'm good. Often how it works. Convenient. Ah, oh, they, they fall short. They don't know what they're doing. They're, 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 they're not quite good enough. Bless their hearts. Right, but, but the reality is, is all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And, and so rather than dividing the world into bad and good, we would be better served if we divided the world into proud and humble. We all need God. The only distinction of those of us who know that we need God and humble ourselves to receive what He has done for us and those of us who are still trapped in our pride thinking, no, no, I've got this on my own. See, we are all sheep. The only distinction is do we recognize that we are? And then if we recognize that we are sheep, the gospel transforms us. Right, it causes us to say, if I'm a sinner saved by grace, if I'm saved, then I am in no way better than the people who are not saved or anyone else that is saved. If, if, if we are, there's no capacity for us to feel superior to others. If we are all dead in our sin, then there's no distinction of, oh, but look, they're deader than me. I'm only a little bit dead. Then they're fully dead. Right, I had a pulse five minutes ago. They've been gone for two hours, dead is dead. There's no, oh, but look, I'm a much better looking corpse. Look at me, I'm lovely. Them, nah, messy, right? I mean, I know I'm still dead, but I look good being dead. I make being dead look nice. Check me out. No, dead is dead. We are all dead in our iniquity. And so if we're all dead, then there's something that unifies us that we look out at the rest of the world and say, hey, you're dead. I am dead. Good news, we know a Savior who deals in the business of bringing life to death. 
It changes something in the way that we see the world. We no longer divide ourselves into good and bad. It's simply proud and humble. It's simply, do you know what God has done for you? And if you do not yet know, let me tell you what He's done for me. Finally, as I, as I get the band up, if number one, we are sheep saved by grace. Trust the shepherd. See, this is ultimately what Jacob is trying to teach Joseph. Right? And we can take from it a lesson about salvation, but, but that's not where Jacob and Joseph are in this moment in history. Joseph is a good father. And, and so as good fathers do, he has plans for his family. He has dreams and aspirations for them. He has plans for Manasseh. He has plans for Ephraim. And Jacob is saying to Joseph, God is not going to give you the life that you want for these boys. God is not going to fall into your plan and fulfill your will for the world. God is going to work in ways that you have not imagined. And in some circumstances, God is going to thwart your agenda. Where you want things to go smoothly, God might introduce a little bit of rough sailing. Where you want things to, to be easy, God might make it a little bit hard or He might allow some opposition to come so that something is formed in you. And Joseph, understandably, is like, no, not that again. Because this is Joseph's life. He went through it. Nothing went according to plan for him. He was favored by his father. As a result of being favored by his father, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He lives a life of, of indentured servitude, works his way up, and then gets thrown in jail. His life is not an easy one to then finally be redeemed and made the prime minister, essentially, of Egypt. So, no, I've, I've lived a hard life. For my sons, I just want them to live a good and an easy life. If, if Manasseh is blessed and he becomes the firstborn, he can do this stuff. Can, I've got it planned for them. Life is going to get back on track. And Jacob's response is simply, no, you need to trust God. Trust that he's got it. And we can see this in how Jacob talks about his own life. In the first portion of his blessing, Jacob acknowledges, I need God like a sheep needs a shepherd. But the second statement is equally important. He says, the angel who has delivered me from all harm. The angel has delivered me from, from all evil. That's an interesting statement. Earlier, I told you the highlights of Jacob's life. Wrestling with the, the angel, stairway to heaven. Right? Great moments. But that's not all of Jacob's life. In fact, the majority of Jacob's life is, is much harder than that. Jacob is raised by a father who doesn't love him who loves his older brother more than him, who falls into the way of the world in a spectacular fashion, who blesses the one who deserves to be blessed. And as a result, Jacob is, is distorted and warped and scarred and poisoned psychologically. He becomes a deceiver to try and steal what he wants. And, and he acts in a wrong way as a result of that and a result of some poor motherly advice. And, and as a result of what he does, he has to flee from his family. And so he flees from his home, from his family, from his father, from those that he loves and loved him. And he flees to, to Laban, a, a surrogate father figure. And there he works for, for Laban for 20 years and Laban exploits him and he manipulates him and he cheats him and he steals from him constantly. And then he's forced to marry a woman that he doesn't love instead of the love of his life. And then finally he gets to marry the woman that he does love and, and shortly after marrying her, she dies within just a few years in childbirth, giving birth to their second son. And then his first son, the light of his eye, the, the one good memory that he has of his wife, Rachel, he favors his son so much that, that, as I said, his other sons take that son and they sell him into slavery. But Jacob doesn't know that. They come back to Jacob and they say, oh, it's so sad. Joseph was killed. Your son is dead. 
And as a result, Jacob falls into 15 to 20 years of deep depression. Throughout all of this, he's also got his hip thrown out of joint when he met God. He lives in fear of, is his older brother going to come in retribution and kill him? And, And so this is the life that Jacob has led. A life of hardship and pain and sorrow. And this is the life that he has the audacity to look back on and say, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this very day, the angel who delivered me from every evil. I don't know about you, when I think on the life of Jacob, I do not think of a man who was delivered from every evil. It sounds like he went through a lot of evil. See, but Jacob was a professional shepherd. This is what he did. This is why Laban trapped him and and, and abused him is because he was so good at looking after the flocks. And Jacob knows what he's talking about. Jacob knows when he calls God a shepherd that shepherds are always doing what is best for the sheep, but the sheep don't necessarily know it. When you think of a shepherd looking after a sheep, maybe what comes to mind is is maybe a picture of of a shepherd carrying like a, a fluffy little ball of joy on his shoulders. Right, like in Sunday school. Yeah, from the story of the, the lost sheep in, in Luke 15. There's a shepherd who owns 100 sheep and, and one is lost. And so he leaves the 99 to go, to go and find the one sheep to bring him home. It's beautiful, right? And I don't know about you, but, but when I imagine it, especially I was going to say when I was a little kid, but even up to this day, if I'm being honest, this is how I think of it. He's a poor little sheep. He wandered off. Oh, poor sheep. And, and he gets lost. And he's stuck. And he's on his own. He's going, oh, if only my shepherd would find me. Help, help. And then around the corner comes the shepherd. Da-da-da-da. And the sheep sees the shepherd. Oh, my shepherd, he's found me. I'm, I'm safe, I'm secure. And he runs to the shepherd and he jumps into, into the shepherd's arms and the shepherd cuddles him and says, it's all right, little sheepy, you're safe now. And he puts him on his shoulder and they, they skip back to the rest of the flock. It's beautiful. And entirely inaccurate. See, Jacob knows that that sheep are stupid. And in fact, when a sheep gets lost, what what happens is, is, is when the shepherd goes to find the sheep, the sheep doesn't know that it's lost. The sheep doesn't know that it's in trouble. The sheep doesn't know that it's wandering into danger. And so when the shepherd arrives to save the sheep, the sheep does not run to the shepherd. The sheep runs away from the shepherd. This is why there are sheep dogs, to scare the sheep into the directions that they actually need to go, to muster them in the direction that they need to, because the sheep don't obey. And finally, when the shepherd catches up to the sheep, the sheep does not stop and say, oh, we played a fun game. I guess I'll follow you now. I'll stay still and you can put me on your shoulder. The sheep continues to run to the point that the shepherd has to tackle the sheep, knock it over, hold it on the ground, tie its front legs together, tie its back legs together, put it on its shoulder and carry the sheep back to the flock the whole time the sheep is struggling. See, Jacob knows that the sheep never feels loved when it's being loved. That the sheep never feels safe when it's being made safe. Jacob knows all that because he's a professional shepherd. And this is why it's amazing that he starts this theme of describing God as a shepherd. Because he's looking back on his life and he's thinking, you know all those places when I thought that God had abandoned me? You know all those places when, when I thought that God was harming me, when I thought that God was hurting me, that God was doing bad by me, that God was letting me down, that God wasn't with me, that, that I'd been left alone by God, that I was outside of His will and His good grace, that He had forgotten who I was. I was wrong. 
I was wrong. He was, he was loving me the whole time. He was my loving shepherd. He was always there. He was always my loving shepherd because sheep never feel loved when they're being loved. Sheep never feel safe when they're being made safe. Never. And he says, now I see it. Now I realize that no matter what was happening in my life, when God crossed my will, when God switched his hands and he didn't bless the thing that I thought that he should bless, he didn't fulfill my plans, he didn't do things the way that I thought that he should, it was the shepherd doing that. And he knew what was good for me. He knew what he was doing. And this is a great theological statement. Fantastic. Very hard reality. It's awesome to say, oh, God's your shepherd. He's going to cross your will. God knows what he's doing. God's at work. You can trust him. It's another thing to embrace that discomfort and to surrender control. It's one thing to say we are sheep. It's another thing to say we are saved by grace. But it's another thing entirely to say, so trust the shepherd great concept, almost impossible to apply in in church, I'm done. But I want to remind you of the fact that Jacob goes by another name, Israel. And Israel means wrestling with God, which points us to Easter. Because there was somebody who, who really wrestled with God. There was a greater Israel than Jacob who wrestled with God in a far greater way. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wrestled with God. With blood coming out of his pores, and he finally said, God, your will be done. See, that was the greatest wrestle that had ever happened. When you and I wrestle with God like Jacob, when we are called to say your will be done, we're simply giving up a a sin or an idol and the result is moving closer to God. But, But when the ultimate Israel, when Jesus wrestled with God, he did not give up a sin or an idol. He gave up Godhood itself. He chose to take on the sin of humanity to separate himself from himself. He 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 took on more than we ever could. And in full circle, Jesus is the shepherd who does it all for us. He comes to us and says, are you struggling to trust the shepherd? Is it hard to submit to God's grace? Trust me, I'll I'll do it. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.